1: I want to encourage you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Exodus chapter 3 and leave them open in your laps as we read words from this passage together. Words spoken by our Creator and Savior through His servant Moses in the long ago. Exodus chapter 3. One of the most significant events in biblical history is the Exodus, God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian slavery. And the opening scenes of this historic event are recorded in Exodus chapter 3. But as important as the Exodus is, it's even more important for us to remember that in Exodus 3, God is revealing to us the attributes of his character. And so even Israel's salvation from Egypt must be seen and understood against the backdrop of God's character as expressed by God's own declarations and as displayed in the burning bush. This morning I want to discuss with you the implications from this text and the fact that it it tells of a truly great moment for Moses and Israel should be enough to capture our attention and to underscore the importance of the study. Israel's sojourn and affliction in Israel had been foretold by God hundreds of years before this time. And it was in the last year of that sojourn that that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. One of the implications of this text is a clear reference to the holiness of God, which is an important biblical subject. Understanding the holiness of God is vital to our relationship with God and to our continued growth in his likeness. One of the first things you'll notice as you begin to read this chapter is that when, God, that when Moses went aside to observe more closely this phenomenon, this bush that was burning and yet not consumed, God said to him, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. The holiness of that ground was not due to some ancient shrine that was there. It was not due to some uh, sacred event that had occurred there in years past. If that had been the case, Moses would have known it from the very beginning, because he had lived in the vicinity for 40 years. Rather, it was God's presence at that location on that day, manifested by the burning bush that made it holy. And Moses needed to understand that he was in the presence of the God that is not only holy, but according to Scripture, is holy, holy, holy. And so the revelation of God's holiness is an important dimension of this text. But there's another dimension of God's character that I want to discuss with you this morning. And we'll begin reading with verse 7. Read with me if you will. And God said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their sufferings. There are three verbs here that we need to look at closely because they tell us something important about God. First, God said to Moses, I have seen, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And then he said, I have heard their cry. And so we know that the God that is revealed here is is not blind, he's not deaf, and he's not ignorant because he goes on to say, I know. Their suffering. Then he announces to Moses the purpose of this encounter on this occasion. Verse eight, he said, "I have come down to deliver them." Isn't that a beautiful expression? Isn't it a wonderful thought to know that God will come down in beha- on behalf of His people? I want you to remember that expression because we'll come back to it near the close of the of the lesson. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then in verse 10, he said, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, Moses' first response to God was in the form of a question. He asked, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Fort Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? All of a sudden, apparently Moses forgot who he was. Oh, I don't mean that he that he had uh, had a, a case of instant amnesia. I'm sure he knew what his name was. I'm sure he know he knew where he was at that occasion. On that occasion, but he had a crisis of identity. He said, "Who am I?" Had he forgotten that he was a descendant of Abraham? Had he forgotten that he had been providentially saved from the the killing of so many of the Jewish infant males? Had he forgotten that he had been providentially adopted by Pharaoh's daughter? That he had been nursed and reared by his own mother who no doubt taught him about the God of Israel that he had received in Egypt perhaps the finest education available in that day. And now God was telling him to go on a mission in his behalf and on behalf of, of his people. And Moses says, who am I to do this? Or maybe he was remembering how that 40 years earlier he had offered himself as a deliverer. Remember? when he had gone out and killed one of their uh, Egyptian oppressors. And according to Acts chapter 7, we read that Moses supposed that his people, that his brethren would have known that God by his hand would deliver them. But they didn't understand that. They didn't accept him as their leader. In fact, they upbraided him because he dared to make himself a ruler and a judge over them. And so sobered by the memory of that rejection and separated from his people by 40 years and a long distance, Moses had become timid and distrustful of himself. Whatever the case was, he said, who am I? Who am I? So the first thing that happened in this encounter with God was that he came. He became confused about his own identity. Calvin said, we never know who we are until we know who God is. You remember the words of of Isaiah chapter 6? When the prophet Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the whole temple. And then he went on to, to, to talk about, to describe the seraphim that stood above and about God. And he said, concerning this angelic host, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Hebrew scholars tell us, some of them tell us, that the likely meaning of this is that the angels cried out to each other in alternate responses. That one said, holy is the Lord of hosts. And another said, holy is the Lord of hosts. And still another said, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then perhaps they joined in the grand course and said, all the earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah continued by saying that the foundations of the temple shook at the voice of him who called and that the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Because, he said, I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. For the first time in his life, Isaiah found out who God was. And at the same time, for the first time in his life, he found out who Isaiah was. And when Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall go for us? Whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? Isaiah, who now better understood who he was, said, Here I am send me. Indeed, we don't know who we are until we first know who God is. You see, if all we do is think about ourselves and compare ourselves with other people around us, pretty soon we'll come to have an inflated view of ourselves and not see ourselves as God sees us. And as long as our gaze is upon the earth, that will be the case. But if we can just lift our eyes to heaven and consider the God of the Bible, immediately, as was true of the holy men of old, the scales will fall from our eyes, so to speak, and we will tremble as we are made aware of our feet of clay and of our frames of dust. So Moses had this encounter with God. And the closer he got to him, the more afraid he became. And when he heard the voice of God say, come, I will send you to to Pharaoh to lead my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, who am I to do such a thing? And in verse 12, God said to Moses, Moses, I will be with you. You know, did you notice God didn't answer the question that Moses had raised, who am I? It's as if God is saying to Moses, Moses, don't worry about who you are. I will be with you. You won't be able to accomplish this anyway because of who you are. You'll be able to accomplish it because of who I am. So don't worry about who you are. And then he said in the latter part of verse 12, he said... "Um, Not that he, he, here's what he said. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt and shall serve God on, you shall serve God on this mountain. In other words, he's saying to him, I'm not sending you on a fruitless mission. I'm not sending you on a fool's errand. But when you have succeeded In delivering the children of Israel, when you have brought them out of the bondage of Egypt, you and they together shall come and worship me on this mountain. Now, now we get to the crux of the matter. Then Moses said to God, verse 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? what shall I say? Moses' first question to God was, who am I? Now what is he asking? He's asking, who are you? What is your name? And I know that question at first glance seems strange, what is your name? But but if you'll stop to remember that names in the Old Testament, often designated the character of a person. They told something about who the person was, who they were, what they were like, or sometimes it told something about what they were going to do or who they were going to become. Abraham. Abram's name was changed to Abraham because he was to become the father of many nations. Jacob's name was changed to Israel because he had wrestled with God. In the New Testament, Simon's name was changed to Peter, a rock. Because in the early days of his discipleship, his character, his spirituality at times resembled more shifting sand. But later, he would become a rock and would submit even to death for the cause of Christ. And so Moses was asking God for a revelation of his character in order that the people of Israel might know that the one he had called to deliver them was sufficient, that he was capable of doing that which he had promised to do. So what is your name? Who are you? Who are you? I believe that the greatest need in America today is the need for people to know who God is. Now, notice I didn't say that the greatest need is for people to know that God is. If I understand the Scriptures, they already know that. But the need is for people to understand who God is. Let's read beginning in verse, one, uh, verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, if you're familiar with the context, in the latter half of this chapter, Paul is talking about the Gentiles who were terrible sinners before God. And he goes on in the next chapter to show that the same was true of the Jews. They, too, were sinners uh, before God. But someone says, how can the Gentiles, how could the Gentiles be under God's condemnation for not doing his will when they didn't know what his will was? But that's what Paul says in this this passage. Paul says that they did know God's will. They were not ignorant. Look at verse 19. He says, For that which can be known about God is plain to them, uh, because God has shown it to them. And then in verse 20, Paul goes on to explain how that's true for the invisible things from the foundation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Paul says you're without excuse to live as though there is no God. You're without excuse to live as though he has no law. Well, they may not have had the law of Moses they didn't have the law of Moses but Paul is saying they had enough knowledge and beside that they had all of creation about them which lends its voice to the testimony of the moral law which they knew and which they broke in verse 21 Paul says for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then he concludes the chapter in verse 32 by saying that even though they knew the decree, the decree of God, that those who practice such things deserve to die, he said they did them anyway. And not only did they do them, but they applauded, they encouraged, they championed others who did them as well. If you want to know what happens when people refuse to honor God, even though they know him, read Romans chapter 1. Our world needs to know who God is, and the church needs to know more About God's character, perhaps the greatest uh, weakness in the church today is the eclipse of the knowledge of the true character of God. A lady visiting a friend of hers in another another city went to church with her one Sunday morning, and following the service, she was standing at the in the back of the auditorium expressing to the minister her appreciation for the sermon, but he noticed a concern of something on her face. And before she turned to walk away, he found out what it was about. Because she said to him, you know, I go to church every Sunday back home, but I get the feeling that our minister is doing everything he can to conceal from us the character of God because he knows that if he that if he talks about God and opens up the scriptures and proclaims the character of God as he's portrayed in the scriptures the people will leave the people will not come and i'm afraid there's a lot of truth in what she said and unfortunately many in the church perhaps feel that way as well they're uncomfortable In the presence of a holy God. They're uncomfortable when certain aspects of God's character are spoken about. Moses wasn't the first person to hide his face from the presence of God. Our first parents did that in the Garden of Eden, you remember? When they tried to hide themselves in the trees to uh, hide their shame from God. Shame they had because of their disobedience. But anyway... Moses asked the question, who are you? What is your name? And you know what God said to Moses? He said, I am who I am. Say to the people, I am has sent you. Now this name of God, I am who I am, is a revelation of God's utter and complete self-sufficiency. God alone is of himself he alone is dependent upon nothing and for moses and israel what this meant was that god did not need the cooperation of pharaoh to accomplish what he said he would accomplish it's the first time in scripture that god gives an explanation of who he is The name I am is the root form of the name Yahweh, which occurs more than 5,000 times in the scripture. And every time you and I read this word in scripture, we should be filled with admiration for his incomprehensible essence, or what it says about who God is. And so in Exodus 3, as you read, You see there that God identifies himself in two ways. First, he identifies himself to Moses as the covenant God, someone who's with his people. And then he identifies himself as the self-existing, eternal God who needs nothing in order to be who he is and to do what he wants to do. Back before the turn of the century, some of you older people like myself will remember david frost you remember had one of the early talk shows and on one occasion he was interviewing madeline mary o'hare a militant uh atheist and uh, they were discussing they were actually debating i guess you would say the existence of god and and o'hare had become agitated and and somewhat angry and so Frost thought that he perhaps should settle this debate and close it out. And he sought to do it by an old American custom. He decided to count noses. And so he asked the audience, there was a, there was a small audience, about 30 people. He asked them, how many of them believe? Now I'm using his words. He said, how many of you believe in some kind of God? Some higher power, something greater than yourself. And practically everyone there raised their hands indicating that they did. And then O'Hare responded by saying, well, what do you expect from the uneducated masses who are brainwashed with this mythology of God? Now, I didn't see this interview myself. I read about it. I was somewhat surprised at, at, at her response. I would have thought that she would have responded by asking Frost to ask the audience, how many of you believe in the God of the Bible? I wonder what the response would have been if the question had been asked with greater clarity. If Frost had said something about how many of you believe in the God of the Bible, the the God who created the, the heavens and the earth, the God who parted the seas of the Red Sea and delivered the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, the God who says, you shall have no other God besides me, the God who says that those who do not obey the gospel are going to be punished with everlasting destruction. I'm convinced that even then, back then, the number of hands raised would have been fewer. I wonder how many would be raised today. Have you noticed? It's almost an institution in our culture to describe God as a higher power, something greater than yourselves. Why do you think that is? Is it not an attempt to appear religious to a degree while at the same time not affirming faith in the God of the Bible? It reminds me of the Israelites in the Old Testament who kept up the temple worship, you remember? But at the same time, they brought in these numerous idols, false gods. What is this so-called higher power? Is it the force be with you like in Star Wars? Is it gravity? Is it lightning? What is its origin? And why is this concept so widely accepted? If you think about it, An impersonal, amoral force makes no ethical demands. Gravity makes no judgment upon how people behave, unless, of course, they jump out of a six-story window. And even then, there is no personal condemnation. Gravity has no voice. It says nothing. It sees nothing. It knows nothing. And if the higher power is impersonal and amoral, It gives you the license to behave as you want to behave with impunity. And and also it means that nobody is at home out there. You know what I mean? There's no personal God. There's no personal Redeemer. What kind of relationship can you have with thunder? It booms through the skies, but it has no revelation. It gives no hope. And gravity cannot forgive anyone of a single sin. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And that is so different from what we hear in society today. I get amused when I see these sideline reporters uh, interview the coaches after the games. It's always the same. Same questions, same answers. Coach, uh, what happened out there today? And the coach will mumble a few words, meaningless words, but somewhere in there he'll say something like, well, you know, I'm just going to, we've just got to focus on the next game. You can expect that that's going to come. But then if the reporter is really trying to make a name for himself, maybe he or she will press the point. But what about this? What about that? And again, he'll mumble mumble a few meaningless words, but almost inevitably he'll conclude by saying, well, you know, it is what it is. I don't know about you, but I am tired of hearing that expression. It is what it is. Someone has said that this phrase is the name of America's God today. It is what it is. But, but when Moses asked God for his name, God didn't say it is what it is. He said, I am who I am, Amen. Yahweh. God's answer is different from our definitions of personhood. When someone asks us who we are, we'll say, I'm a teacher, I'm 42 years of age, I wish. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I come from Montgomery, my parents. But God is not defined by anything outside of himself. He is who he is. And the very first thing he reveals about himself in his name is that he is a personal and relational God. He can see, he can hear, he can speak, he can think, he can relate to those creatures he made in his image. He is the God who delivered the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. He is a God with a name. He is a God with a history. And his names tell us something about his character. A young lady walked into the classroom one day and she was holding her hand in a rather obvious position. And the teacher said, Mary, is that, a, is that an engagement ring you have? And she smiled and said, Yes. Well, would you share with us who, who's, who, who, are you, who are you going to marry? And she pointed to John, who was in the back of the classroom, and said, said John. And the teacher said, Mary, that's wonderful. said, look, I, I know that since you're going to marry him, you love him. Can you tell us why do you love John? And blushing, she said, because he is so handsome. And the teacher said, well, he is handsome, but now there's Bill back there. He was the escort for the homecoming queen. Isn't he handsome? And she said, Well, yes, Bill's handsome. Well, there must be something else. What else? She, he said, Well, and, and she said, Well, he's so athletic. And the teacher said, Yes, I've seen him play. He's athletic, but again, Bill, he's the captain of his basketball team. Isn't he athletic? Well now the, the blush has gone from her face, a wrinkle has occurred on a on a on a forward and and she says, well, he's he's so intelligent. And the teacher said, well, I know he's intelligent, but again, Bill will likely be the valedictorian of his class. Mary, can't you tell, there's got to be something. Can't you tell us something that is special, why John means, means so much to you? And she said, well, he's he, uh, because he, he, because, and finally in desperation, wanting badly to sit down, actually wanted to crawl in a hole, she said, he's John. And the teacher said, now I understand. When it comes to the essence of, the, of who one is, of what someone means to you in terms of your relation with them and your personal history with them, it comes down to one's name and what that name means and stands for in relation to that person. The prophet Isaiah said, speaking of the Messiah, the incarnate word, he said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's why God's name is wonderful. Because in that name, he reveals manifold things about the excellency of his being and the perfections of his character. And that's why when the saints of old inquired as to who God was, the answer given was, I am who I am, Yahweh. Now, before we close, you remember I asked you to remember a phrase that we read in the beginning of the lesson? When God said to Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. I want you to think about that expression. And I want you to think about the fact that some 2,000 years ago, God came down to earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us, you and me, from the bondage of sin. He became a man for you and for me. He did not give up his Godhead, but in every sense of the word, he became a man. And finally, he went to the cross and shed his blood that we might have the remission of sins. Paul talked about this in Galatians 4 when he said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He said in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. To the Corinthians he wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. Our great God the eternal self-existing God came down from heaven to earth, became a man for you and for me, came to pay a debt that we could not pay, came to redeem us from the bondage of sin, all because of the great love that he has for us. Now, I have one question for you this morning. What has been your response to what God has done for you? Have you accepted Him? Do you trust Him? Will you obey Him? Paul said in Ephesians 2, by grace are you saved through faith faith. But he also said in Romans 1 and 5 that he had received apostleship in order that he might bring about the obedience of faith through the preaching of the gospel. The faith that saves is a faith that obeys. Have you obeyed God? Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all in like manner perish. He said, whosoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will not be saved. What has been your response to what God has done for you? As we stand and sing a song of encouragement, we want to encourage any of you here today, who need to respond to please do so.